In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with thongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. We're picking up right where we left off last night. Hopefully you remember. We're talking about when God becomes real, moving from God as a concept to God as a reality. And we're looking at how it happened for Isaiah, as described in Isaiah 6, to see how it can happen for us. So last night we looked at the first two things, which were two things that you come to see and realize about God for the first time when he becomes real. You finally see his glory and you finally see his beauty. Tonight what we're going to be doing is turning the camera around because there are also two things that you come to see for the first time about yourself when God becomes real. Two things you never realize about you that when he moves from being a concept to to being a reality, all of a sudden these become very self-evident. We're going to look at those two tonight. The first is that when God becomes real, you you finally have a true sense of, of your unworthiness your true unworthiness. The second thing is that when God becomes real, you finally understand your true worth. So those two ideas will we'll take up uh, the rest of our time tonight, and we'll take them one at a time. When God becomes real, you finally understand your true unworthiness, and when God becomes real, you finally understand your true worth. So first, your unworthiness. When God becomes real, you finally come to, to see for the first time your true unworthiness. And this is what you see in the passage. You know, Isaiah is in the temple. He goes in the temple like we talked about last night, like you heard read. And he sees the he sees God on his throne. He sees the angels. He sees the, the doorpost shaking. He hears the angels. He sees the smoke. And what he doesn't say is, oh, cool. He, he doesn't say, like, wow, this is great. This is going to be a great show. And lucky me, I've got a front row seat. What he says is, Woe is me, I am ruined. In other words, Isaiah's reaction, the first time that he meets the real God, is, I'm screwed. You know, this, this is bad for me. This is really bad for me. And it's typical. Typical reaction. You see it in, in all throughout Scripture. So, uh, you know, do you think about Job says, uh, there's that place where he says, Before I had heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes, and I repent in dust and ashes. 
Or same thing with Peter, uh, the first time he figures out who Jesus really is. Yeah, this was the, the miraculous catch of fish. You know, Peter has this huge catch of fish uh, when Jesus tells him to, to let down his nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter doesn't say, oh, this is great. You know, we're going to have a, a great fishing business. This is very useful to me. He's not excited. He's, he's filled with dread. It's the exact opposite. What he says is, depart from me, Lord, for I, I am a sinful man. Get away from me. Get away from me. I'm unworthy. I don't want to be around you. Basically, every time somebody meets the real God for the first time in the Bible, they start to hate themselves. And the reason for that is very straightforward. You can even see this same dynamic at work, even just on a, on a human level. You know, what is, what is God's holiness? You know, holy, holy, holy. We talked about last night uh, one aspect of his holiness, uh, which was his beauty. But I said last night, if you remember, I said we're going to talk about another aspect of his holiness tonight. And another, you know, his holiness is like a diamond that you can turn and look at the different facets of it. It's a big concept. Another aspect of his holiness is not just his beauty, but it also refers to his perfection, his, uh, his superlativeness. You know, the fact that he is better and beyond any of us. His power is beyond any of us. His wisdom is beyond any of us. His love is beyond any of us. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And if you had to choose one word to sum up all of that superlativeness, all of that bestness and highness and greatness, you'd, you'd choose this one word, holy. So when you come into the presence of the holy, when you come into the presence of something that's better than you are, even on a human level, it has the effect of crushing your self-image. So, you know, a lot of people have had this experience where you move to New York and you're moving uh, from somewhere where you were the best at something. You know, you're the, the smartest or the prettiest or the, the most ambitious or the funniest or the best athlete, whatever it was, because you know, it was a smaller town, smaller pond. And, of course, it's unavoidable. That becomes part of your identity and self-image. So you think you're pretty, you think you're smart, you think you're fast, and then you move to New York. And you find out that you're exposed constantly to beauty and talent and intelligence and really holiness, betterness, superlativeness, than you've been exposed to before. Moving to New York is like moving into the presence of the holy, in a sense. And you're crushed. You say, woe is me, I am ruined. You know, if you think about like an a actor or a singer or a musician going to an audition, and they're, they're, they think they're pretty good, and they're waiting in the hallway, and they can overhear through the door that the person that's going ahead of them is you know, ten times better than they'll ever be. What they'll, what they'll say is, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm screwed. <laughs> because that's beyond me. It crushes your self-image. And if that's how it works, even just on a human level, then how could it be otherwise with God? It's going to be just that much worse with God, that much more crushing with God to be exposed to his holiness, to his superlativeness. And you say, you know, I don't, I don't know if I like where this is going. I mean, this is, this is sort of like 
negative, you know. I like to try to stay positive. You know, I, I like to try to have a positive conception of God. You know, I, I believe in a God of love. Oh, fine, it doesn't matter. You know, even if we were just suppose for a minute that God is just love, purely love, no justice, no wrath, no holiness. Even if that were the case, when you come into his presence, what would you see? You'd see all of a sudden that you had thought you were a loving person and you never had loved anybody in your entire life. You'd see that you are so much more selfish and so much more cruel than you had ever realize so even if he's just pure love it's the same thing it's going to crush you and what talking about it in those terms helps us to see is the reason why god's holiness and god's betterness is so much more crushing than the betterness or the holiness of another person which is that it's not just that he's better than you at something it's not it's not just that he's good at everything it's that he is goodness itself he is justice and righteousness and truth itself, which means when you move into his presence, there's this moral dimension to it. It's about character. It's not just about talents. Like, I'm not as smart or as good at this as I thought I was. It's not just about reevaluating your place in the pecking order. What you come to see when you move into God's presence is, well, wait a minute, I'm just not good, Period. One of the foundational beliefs for most people, one of, their, one of their core tenets, is that they think, you know, I don't know about this or that. I don't know about how I stack up in this or that area. I, maybe I'll fail. Maybe I'll succeed. But this thing I do know, at least I know that deep down, I'm a good person. And when you meet the real God you come to find out that that is simply not the case. It's just not true. Now, the hard part about that is not uh, wrapping your mind around it in the abstract. It's one thing to, to say, oh, I'm not a good person in the, in the abstract. That's easy. The hard part about coming to see that you are not a good person is, is what it makes you come to terms with is that you're no different than all of the people that you've been looking down on. So there's us and there's them. There's the good people and the bad people. And if you're not one of the good people, then there's only other, one other category that you can be in. And so, fine, I'm, I'm bad, big deal. But then when you look at all those people that your whole life you know, you've been looking at as wicked and evil and twisted and perverted and gross and disgusting or even just a step down from there people you've been looking at as stupid and ignorant and parasitic and you figure out for the first time that you're one of them that you're no different than they are that is the bitter pill and and that's what Isaiah comes to you, you heard what he said woe is me I am ruined. And what he says is, I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. We know from uh, Jewish tradition that Isaiah was one of the good people. He was one of the good guys. He was one of the moral people. He's one of the societal elites. He was the king's nephew, part of the royal family, actually. 
And so just by, by way of historical background, you know, it starts, the passage starts with in the year that King Uzziah died. The reason that's significant, so Uzziah the king, his uncle, uh, before his death, had been sick. And he had leprosy, which meant that he was uh, in seclusion. So nobody had been steering the ship of state. You know, the country was really in disarray. And you have to think that Isaiah, as the next generation of royalty, is watching this and is thinking to himself, well, just wait. You know, when I get my chance, so the year King Uzziah died is the year that he's going to get his chance. When I get my chance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in there and I'm going to clean things up. Because I know what's wrong with this country. I know who the problem is. I know who's messing everything up. And I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fix everything. So how do you know he was thinking that? Because that's the way that everybody thinks. You probably noticed that's the way every single presidential candidate talks across the board. And why do they talk like that? Because it resonates. They talk like that because we think like that. We get the presidential candidates we deserve. They're just a reflection of us. They're just us writ large. They talk like that because it connects. Because everybody... Everybody thinks in those terms. Those guys over there, they're the problem. This is what we were talking about on Christmas Eve, if you can remember back that far. Everybody thinks it's them over there, that group over there that's unclean. It's not just on a societal level. You know, the same thing's true in personal relationships and families. So uh, I can tell you the one thing that 100% of failed marriages and strained marriages and unsatisfying marriages have in common, 100% of the time, what you have is two people who both think the other person is the problem. And if they would just change, if they would just clean up their act and get it together, then everything would be fine. It's the same thing with, with parents and teenagers. You know, the, the, the parents feel like, what is wrong with you? And the kid is thinking, what is wrong with you? This is the way human beings think. And Isaiah's big epiphany isn't just that he's unclean. He says, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. He's always known that they were unclean. It's easy to see that other people are unclean. Everybody knows that. But now he comes to see that he is one of them. He's no different than them. He's no better than them. He's, he's one of the unclean ones. That's the first half of the, the sermon tonight, is the first thing you come to realize in a new way when you come into the presence of the real God is you see for the first time your true unworthiness. But it gets better for here, from here, it gets better in the second half, because the, the second thing that you come to realize, and then Isaiah comes to realize when he comes into the presence of the real God about himself, is for the first time, he comes to see his true worth. And it happens, the whole, the whole thing, the process is set in motion by his confession. You know, he speaks it aloud. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And as soon as he says that, that's what sets events in motion. The angel comes with the fire, comes flying toward him with the fire. And you know it's the fire of God because even the angel has to use tongs to pick up this coal. And what Isaiah would have thought is, well, here we go. You know, it's going to happen. 
Because throughout Scripture, the fire of God, all sorts of references to this in Scripture, all sorts of examples of it, fire of God is God's judgment and God's wrath to consume the wicked. And so remember, Isaiah has just figured out for the first time he's one of the wicked ones. That penny drops, and as soon as that happens, here comes the angel with the fire. He thinks, it's over. I'm going to be wiped out. But instead of that, what the angel does is he, he takes the coal with the tongs and he presses it to Isaiah's lips. The same lips that he had just said were unclean, the unclean lips, but also the same lips from which his confession had just been uttered. He takes the coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips and he says, See, your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. Those of you who are uh, have been around church or are at all familiar with Christianity, you know that, that this is basically the big idea of the Christian faith. This is kind of the, the foundational element. And this is the one move you have to make spiritually. If you, you can forget everything else, you can miss everything else, you just have to get this part right. And it's a very simple idea. It's just this, this idea that if you say it out loud, if you confess it, if you own your sin and own your guilt and own your uncleanness and unworthiness, then God will come with his fire and cleanse you and purify you of that same uncleanness. First John 1 John 1.9, if you, if you haven't memorized any verses in the Bible, start with this one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what happens with Isaiah. It's easy, it's simple, it's straightforward, but it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of our instincts. Because our instincts are, if we do recognize it at all, if we let ourselves recognize it, our instincts are to hide it, to not talk about it. And if we hide it, and if we don't talk about it, then maybe it'll be like it never happened. This is what you see with Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they hide, and they want to just pretend like it didn't happen. And the irony is, that's the only way you will get judged. The only way you will get judged is if you hide it and cover it over. The only way you won't get judged is if you confess, and you open, and you come into the light. You have to move against your instincts. It's counterintuitive. But Isaiah does it. And the coal comes and touches his lips. Says The angel says, your guilt has been atoned for. And then watch what happens next. Right after that, the, the very next verse is where God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? In other words, he says, Isaiah, I've got a little business going. I'm saving the world and I need a new partner. So how about it? One second after he realized for the first time that he was more unclean than he had ever let himself believe, more unworthy than he had ever let himself believe, one second after that, he now becomes more valued and more affirmed and more worthy than he had ever dreamed or hoped because God... The real God, the holy God, the beautiful God, the glorious God, the God that is infinitely beyond Isaiah, 
that God is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, I think you are worthy to be my spokesman. So essentially God breaks him down and then builds him right back up again. His self-image is totally deconstructed and then reconstructed on the spot. But the key is, it is reconstructed on a totally different basis. Everyone's high self-esteem. But what psychologists have started to figure out is that high self-esteem isn't good across the board. So there are a lot of good things about it. People with high self-esteem are good citizens for the most part. They're good workers, good employees. They tend to be less depressed. There's all these great things about high self-esteem, but there's a dark side to it. Because high self-esteem, the way you get it, is it's always based on comparison. It's either comparing yourself to other people or comparing yourself to some objective standard. So it can go wrong. It's problematic in, in two major ways. In the first place, the first way it goes wrong is if you have it because you measure up. You measure up to the standard or you measure up against other people. So great, good for you. What's the problem? It's that what about the people that don't measure up? And you say, well, I would never you know, look down on anyone. But you do. You do look down on people. And the reason I know you do is because you can't not. It's impossible not to because the standard of comparison is the reason you feel good about yourself. So if you say the standard doesn't matter, then you don't have your self-esteem anymore. In other words, arrogance and looking down on others is high self-esteem's evil twin. The two cannot be separated. They have to go together. One depends upon the other. It's a symbiotic relationship. That's the first problem with high self-esteem, is if you do measure up, you're going to be arrogant, you're going to be puffed up, and you're going to look down on others. But then the second problem with it is, what if you don't measure up? What if you slip and you fall short? And you say, well, that would never happen to me. Well, fine, but I can point out a lot of people that thought that would never happen to them, and then it did. And when it does happen, when you slip and when you fall short, and it's just a matter of time, it seems like it could never happen, and then it does. When you slip and when you fall short, what happens is you're crushed. You're absolutely crushed. Because this standard of comparison that gave you your sense of identity is now damning you. It's now judging you and telling you that you're worthless. Those are your two options. They are your only two options in the self-esteem paradigm. Either you do measure up and you're arrogant and you look down on everyone, or you don't measure up and you're crushed. And when Isaiah meets the real God... God gives him something totally different. Instead of giving him self-esteem, which has this dark side, what God gives to Isaiah is true self-worth. Because he starts by saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, look, uh, you don't measure up. In fact, it's scary how bad you don't measure up. So let's just be honest about that to begin with. But now that you've confessed it, I don't care. I'll cleanse you. And, you know, don't, don't sit there wallowing. Stand up, because there's work to do. I've got a job for you to do, and I want you to come join me in this. 
totally different basis. Instead of it being about measuring up, you admit that you don't, and now the basis of your self-worth is in God's grace and God's call. The fact that he's chosen you and called you just because. So what that means is you can basically have a type of self-esteem, but without any of the nasty side effects. You know, so you can, you can still be just as bold and just as confident and just as assertive and just as ambitious as the person with the highest self-esteem. But you're not going to be puffed up and you're not going to be arrogant. Nothing can throw you for a loop anymore because if you succeed, you know that it was only by God's grace. God picked you up when you would realize that you were the most unworthy person imaginable. It's only because he touched your lips with the coal. So you, there's no reason for pride. But then on the other hand, you can also be with this self-worth, not self-esteem, but self-worth. You can also be just as meek and just as humble and just as approachable as, as the most unassuming person imaginable, but without any of the negative side effects of self-doubt and wondering if you're good enough because your self-worth comes from God. It's a totally different basis. What we're talking about, basically, is this this mystery that nobody has really figured out how to solve, which is how do you be confident and humble at the same time? And people that are confident and humble at the same time can change the world. You know, you look at the, all of the men and women that are used by God in the Bible, this is their secret. This is the thing they've got. Confidence and humility at the same time. And there's only one place to get it. The only way to get it is by having your self-esteem destroyed, realizing that you're more unworthy than you ever let yourself believe. But then having God build it back up again on a new basis, not based on performance, but based on his grace and based on his call. As we close tonight, I want to come back to the thing that you have to do to set it all in motion, the thing that Isaiah did, which is to confess. You have to confess your sin. That's your part. That's what what makes it all happen. I've been uh, convicted as your pastor that I need to talk to you more about sin uh, for a couple of reasons. In the first place, because you're not going to hear about it anywhere else. There's plenty of places you can get good ideas for living. There's plenty of places you can get some inspiration or a nice story. But nobody else is going to talk to you about this, which is too bad because this is your real problem. But the, the other reason that I've become more convicted about this is just because the longer I've been a pastor, the longer I've been a husband and a father, for that matter, the longer I've been a man, the more I hate sin. I hate it. I hate what it does to me. I hate what it does in my family. I hate what it does in this church. I hate what it does in the city. I hate it. And I want you to deal with it. I want you to take care of it. You just have to give it to God. Just give it to God. You confess it, and he cleanses you. But if you hide it, then there's no hope for you. And I mean that literally. I know that's a strong phrase. But if you hide it, there's no hope for you. you know, we, we talked last night about uh, what, what's this weekend about and what, what do I want you to get out of it. I want you to meet God. 
And, you know, so there's a lot of different dimensions to that that we've been talking about. And for some of you, it's going to be some of the stuff we talked about last night with uh, coming to see God's beauty for the first time or maybe coming to see his glory, his weight, giving way to his weight in your opinions or your agenda. For others of you, maybe it's something today in the time of solitude that we talked about um, or just committing to have more regular times of solitude with God. And there's all sorts of different things that could make this a worthwhile weekend. But what would really make it a worthwhile weekend is if some of you would deal with your sin. And when you do, and when he cleanses you, when he purifies you, and then gives you a job to do, and gives you a totally new basis of identity and self-worth, then everything changes. And you've got something that nobody can take away, and that makes all the difference in every area of your life. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to think about that and uh, open ourselves up to that idea. But before we do, let's pray. God, we are, we just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about our uncleanness. It's just not pleasant. We want to talk about anything else. I pray that you would, by your spirit, pierce us. That you would crush us with your gloriness, with your truth and your justice and your righteousness. And that we would come to see for the first time how unworthy we are so that we might then come to see our true worth in you. If it's just a general sense of our unworthiness, I pray you speak to us about that if that's what we need to hear about if it's a specific area of sin that we've been keeping to ourselves. I pray that you'd speak to us about that. I pray that you would help us to see our sin as you see it, not as a little thing, but as something that has the potential to ruin everything. And that you give us the courage to come to you, even though we're afraid that you're going to destroy us, to come to you as Isaiah did and to be cleansed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.